Hello everyone, my name is Kanai Kapadia, and this is Hindsight. Hindsight is produced by KGK & Company, a data-driven value creation partner guarantees client return on investment. To learn more about the firm and how prospective clients can receive a complimentary one-day analysis, go to www.kgkcompany.com. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and on this episode of Hindsight, I'm Brian O'Keefe, CEO of Vertical Knowledge. Brian has an interesting background. He spent 20 years in the U.S. Army, ultimately retiring as a sergeant major. And during his final years in the Army, he gained experience as a business owner by operating two brick-and-mortar businesses. As he was leaving, Vertical Knowledge, who was a uh, vendor to the U.S. Army at the time, offered him an advisory role, which very quickly turned into Brian becoming COO and president and then CEO of the business. And that was just 18 months ago. Brian, thank you for coming on the show. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me, Can I? Before we get in, I always like to make time to say thank you to folks who've served in the Army. I appreciate it. Can you tell us a little bit about what Vertical Knowledge is? Yeah, sure. Yeah, Vertical Knowledge is a uh, data collection insights and intelligence company. So simply put, uh, Vertical Knowledge focuses on collecting data that is available in the public domain uh, to help our customers across a, a diverse set of uh, markets, uh, help them better understand their problems and solve the problems, deliver their uh, their product more effectively, more efficiently to, to their customer base. There's a lot of data available in the public domain. And our, our businesses finding that data, make, bringing it into a, uh, to a, uh, an infrastructure that makes it available to our customers to be able to actually um, extract value. So in concept, any business could be your customer, right? We all want to know, we all, all want to understand how economic data or customer data corresponds to who our customers are in our businesses, right? How do you guys figure out who your customer is when everyone could be your customer? Yeah, so I, that's a great question. So you know, I think there is as the as the years tick by and uh, we become uh, more focused on leveraging technology across uh, any market vertical. Uh, there's there's going to be some level of utility to harness public data to fine tune your operation. I think where where we like to focus is from a consultative perspective, uh, helping scope our customer potential customers' understanding of uh, what data, what public data is, how they could use it. Uh, so really getting into the business of understanding a level, the level of sophistication of a potential data consumer, right? So could we sell data to everybody? Yeah, absolutely. Do we? No, we don't. As they have some organizations, uh, they culturally or from an organizational construct or technology investment standpoint, I mean, lack some of the basic components that, that would make it most advantageous for them to actually use the data from a, from a data collector and data provider perspective, you know, it, it, helps us bend potential customers into a couple of different categories, right? There's sometimes there's more curation, uh, there's more technology delivery required for us to put that, that, uh, those insights into the hands of a customer. And, you know, from us, it, uh, it's a, I'd say it's a fairly straightforward, uh, standard business practice to determine what it's going to cost us to do the work, you know, where there's profit, profitability in that, in that work. Um, and does it make sense for both us and the customer to continue that partnership, right? So. We're focused not just on the transactional component of buying or of selling data, collecting and selling data, but also the relational component too, to make sure our customers are actually, un they understand what they're buying and they, they can extract the value that they, that they hope to get. Right. Now, there are a lot of different types of data in the public domain. 
just to help us wrap our heads around this a little more specifically, what are some of the more prominent use cases, if there is such a thing? Yeah, there are. And I think it, uh, it's, it is um, industry or market vertical dependent, but, um, you know, I, I think the one that comes to mind most frequently are, you know, how, how financial services customers mm-hmm. understand the markets, right? They do that primarily through uh, the availability of data uh, and their ability to take that data and put it into their into their models, right, to deter, uh, to uh, support their investment thesis to, to ultimately um, you know, trade successfully uh, in the in the global markets. Um, so I think e-commerce data is a really good example. Different uh, brand consumer information, uh, not specific to individuals, but general market trends on what uh, what items are in highest demand, where they're being sold, what the price points are. Uh, comparisons of how consumption changes over time by brand, by size, by color, by type of item. Uh, so that's a, I think that's a pretty good, very common um, understanding of what publicly available data is. Yeah. So, I don't think I even realized that was publicly available. It is. As yeah. Data guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it would be, it would be difficult for somebody to sit at home, consume the large volumes of data, but, but it is available. It is available. Yeah. So you've already talked a little bit about key success factors, but if you're, if you're processing data that's in the public domain, um, staying competitive could conceptually be challenging, right? So what do you view as the key success factors for the business? Yeah, I, th- I think it's a few things. First and foremost, uh, it's data quality, right? So, you know, when you're, regardless of what you're selling in whatever industry you're, you're selling into you. Uh, you always want to have a quality product. For us, our product is data. So, uh, you know, taking taking a few additional steps, investing in the appropriate infrastructure and the and the human talent, you know, required to make sure the things that we were collecting are collected in a compliant fashion, uh, but they're collected at a level of consistency and quality uh, that customers can uh, can come to appreciate. Right, it's just like anything else. Right, the thing that you're selling should be of high quality, of the highest quality possible. Uh, so we we treat data no different. Vertical knowledge has been a, in the data collection business for almost eighteen years. So as we in the kind of the the winds change in this marketplace, because data can be difficult to sell in certain instances, what we find is that companies that exist in this space tend to transition from pure data collection to data collection and platform. Right? It's easier to see the data on your single pane of, pane of glass sort of capability. Uh, but that requires additional investment. It requires, uh, it, in some cases, it requires a different technology and engineering skill set. So your business starts to transform as you try to create a, a platform uh, or a user experience that makes it easier for you to sell your core product. You know, eventually you become a platform company, and now you're competing at a different technology vertical in that space. Yeah, it's, for for vertical knowledge, what we try very hard to do is stay focused on our core competency. The thing that we started as is the thing that we are today. We are first and foremost, a data collection company that operates in the public domain. Uh, and I think for us, that's a really important distinction. So we do see competitors come up and you know they've got good quality data and then that competitor becomes a data collector and a, uh, a data analytics platform company. They do a little bit of both. And then fast forward two, three years, they're a platform company. And they're buying their data, and in some cases that happens where it happens where uh, that that uh, initial data company turns into a platform company, and then they call us to to partner to be their data provider. Yeah, it turns out those are two different businesses, heavily complementary, but fundamentally and technologically different 
in terms of how you execute uh, a business. So do you think the compelling, the trend towards platform, is that driven by valuation? I think part of it is, right? So when you look at multiples for SaaS businesses compared to tech-enabled services, in generally, right, your SaaS multiple is going to be a little better. I think it's it's easier to value software, right? It's a, a little more tangible uh, data as tech-enabled services uh, it kind of sits in between those markets. So yeah. it can be difficult to to extract at a, an appropriate valuation. Yeah, I think so. I think there's there's real appeal there. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think that there's a I think there's an expectation to that. You know, if you're if you're building software, um, you, know, you as as other technology evolves, you can integrate that technology into your business and reduce your operating expenses. Right. So yeah. you uh, you go from human in the lead to uh, to human in the loop to human supervising the the machine. Right. So yeah. You know, natural evolution of of leveraging technology to uh, enhance your business, gain efficiencies, optimize your infrastructure and your product yeah. with you know, to increase headcount. And yeah. it sounds good in the in the data collection business, there's still a human touch component to it that we think is important from a data collection standpoint, but also uh, from a customer engagement standpoint as well. I think as you as you generate software and put that software in between you and your customer base, you start to lose some of that customer intimacy and the relational components of, of that partnership. And it becomes purely almost pure. You're, you're moving towards the click and buy transactional nature, which can be difficult to, uh, I think it, to me, I think that it, it, it could have a material impact over time on, you know, recurring revenue, uh, stickiness of, of customers that you've had for a long time that they, they came to you because you had that, you were able to build that relationship. And then you put that software between you and that uh, and the other and the your human uh, customers, right? Grow the relationship over time. That's an important aspect. But when it comes to data collection, and if you don't have the platform, the robust platform, which I think they would argue, look, there are other ways to drive retention in um, when you when you're a platform provider. But in the data services business or the data collection business, how do you you know you talk about quality data? Data quality is such a nuanced topic. How do you substantiate yourself versus, say, a platform plus data provider to be able to to essentially validate the claim of we have higher quality data? Yeah, I think it's a there's a couple of components to it. Uh, you know, first and foremost, I think we we focus as a as a data collection business on maintaining a agnostic end-to-end data collection infrastructure, right? So it doesn't matter what sort of data you want, as long as it's in the public domain, like we're pretty confident that we're tuned to be able to go and get that data. Uh, and if, if you're, if you as the customer are looking for a single data source or a single insight that's going to come from a small grouping of data sources, we're actually probably going to collect more than what you think we would collect to make sure that we can verify the data uh, that we're actually going to provide to you as a customer. So, you know, we talk about uh, as a company, we talk about raw collections as a as a data collection business. We talk about refined products, which is a collection of like data sources, and then we talk about taking those those refined products or that you know those collection of, of raw sources, and then uh, applying a level of uh, analysis to it to to help a customer extract the insights a little more cleanly, right? So that we consider. Um, you know, the work that we would been as intelligence. Look, from a raw collection standpoint, we we further dissect that into two different pieces. There's business raw, which is as you for you as a data as a data consumer, as a data customer, that's how you're going to see the raw collection, which should meet your intent. 
what we're collecting is collections raw, right? It's the, as a data collection company, the data that we're going out that may be dirty, that, that is most likely to a certain degree unstructured, um, that may be fragmented and we have to fill in those, those gaps and that evaluate that inside our data engineering pipeline before we see it as a customer. So for us as a data company, those, we spend most of our time in the salt mine doing those things before you ever see or touch the data. So our founder used to say, said it elo- more eloquently than, than I probably will. When you think about data, data as oil, you know, what he built as vertical knowledge is the world's best drilling operation, right? He built Slumberjay, yeah. the, the oil business, uh, the oil, oil sector. Um, so that, that is where we're focused. We're 90% focused on identifying the places, even if it's disparate data sources that we think we're going to need to pull back and evaluate stitch together to make sure that our customers' questions are being answered that the data that you expect to get is, is, uh, as clean and polished as it could be. Um, that's the, that's, I think the magic of our business is maintaining that robust infrastructure that has existed for almost 20 years and being able to tune it in a way and think about how to collect data to get you what you need before you ever see it. Right. So what we need from the customer is here's what I'm hoping to learn and then we'll take it from there. So I think that's yeah. really important when you think about the, the departure of collector to consumer, there is a pretty clear divide there, right? We want to stay on our side of the bridge and we want the consumers to stay on, on their side. We want to make sure that we meet them in the middle uh, to focus on consumption, not collection. Yeah. You know, it's nice because there's a lot of show up and throw up in you know, that's right. That's right. the data business. I've been on the receiving end of some of that and it's, uh, yeah, it's always frustrating. Well, we see it. We see a fair bit of that. We're not only collecting pristine data sources, we're collecting the yeah. too. And we just, it's on us to, to shed the junk and, and focus on the, on the diamonds and the, and the rough, so to speak. You know, I think another component of it is, you know, we like to say a VK, we eat our own dog food, right? So we, not only do we collect the data, but you know, that, that analysis and insights component of our business consumes the data that we collect as well. So if you're a data customer and we collect that data, we're going to save a copy of all of that data. And our, our folks inside of our own company are going to use that as well. So yeah, there's there's an issue with it from a quality assurance, quality control, or utilization perspective. In many cases, we're going to catch that well before the customer does. Yeah. Because we're, we're using the same things that we, we sell to our customers. Fascinating line of work. Um, I'm a little biased being a data guy, but um, I certainly appreciate it. Let me shift gears a little bit. I'm going to go back to you starting at Vertical Knowledge. Vertical Knowledge is a PE-owned company, right? Or PE-backed company. And what's interesting to me is they tend to be pretty selective in who they let into the leadership team, right? Now, folks who come out of the, out of the army are usually pretty sharp, certainly when they're, when they've been able to get, get as um, high in the ranks as yourself. Why did you make a good, from your standpoint, why do you think you made a good fit to bring on to vertical knowledge? Yeah, I think, um, what I think one of the important components of it was one, you know, I had a personal relationship with, uh, with the, the CEO and founder. Um, so he's a tremendous mentor and uh, an advocate for me. Uh, it was a great resource for me as I was thinking about transitioning away from the military, which is the thing I had done my entire adult life. Yeah. So he was you know, he was an important component of that transition. In terms of why I was a good fit here, I, I don't honestly I don't think anybody knew, including myself. There's a component of there was a significant component of uh, you, you've got to give to get sometimes. Right? Sure. And uh, I think if, as I think about my position now as CEO of this company, you know, one of the primary focuses I have is people. 
uh, making sure that we're bringing people into the organization that are the best fit, are low risk, or have the aptitude to, to work in this business and grow and deliver to customers. And so you've got to have some level of visibility into people to, to make those sort of decisions. And sometimes you don't have a lot of time to, to do it. I will give most of the credit to, to Matt. I identified something that I had that I hadn't identified yet, and he thought that I would be a good fit inside the organization. I also think too, it helped that I was a customer for five years. Yeah. Uh, so I already understood the product. I understood uh, some of the dynamics of the company. I had relationships with different folks in the company as well. So it was a pretty good, I wasn't an unknown. Not everybody yeah. knew, but I think it, it made my transition uh, much easier because I was right. something I was familiar with. Right. And it's probably, is, is it reasonable to say you had some domain knowledge given that you were a customer and consuming it in some way? Yeah, that's right. I think, yeah, 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 yeah. I, I walked across the consumption to collection bridge, right? It right. Flip sides. Yeah. 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 And that, I think that helps. So having run businesses before, you know, there's a lot more than just understanding the product that is substantial, not to diminish it, but what was your process for learning the business when you, when you started at vertical knowledge as an advisor? Yeah, that's another great question. What I, I inaccurately assumed uh, that because it was a technology company that I had to spend a majority of my time with the technology departments in the business. Right. But that's, that's only one component. It's, it is important, but I think that was probably the place I gravitated towards because, because I was familiar with the business and I was familiar with the product and the delivery. So I felt it was a natural progression for me to spend time with those folks. And it was helpful, right? As there's always things as a customer, you're not going to see inside a, inside of a vendor, right? So the internal workings, internal dynamics So yeah, stuff was important, but you know, as, as the months, my initial months, the uh, ticked by, like what I found was. The things that I thought were most important weren't necessarily for me, for my personal development and growth to be able to contribute to the business. I need to spend time with marketing and finance and HR, um, understand the operations, the, you know, the, the business operations of, the, of uh, the total enterprise to be able to support those technology components, sales. And that was another area um, I spent uh, considerable time with. So my, my perception of the business changed, the perception of my growth and integration plan changed, it evolved. As I, as I spent more time in the business and, and, you know, candidly, the things that I were, I was being asked to do, the problems I was being asked to solve, the decisions I was being asked to make, they were, they weren't really technology focused, right? We had good technology leadership in the business. So the things that I needed to do, I spent very little time as an advisor, as the chief operating officer in the business revolved around business operations. So mm -hmm. I had to quickly reorient away from technology as my primary focus and, and take a, a different balcony view of, of the business as a whole. Right. So that, and that's really where I, I started to, I think, feel challenged, but in a good way where I was, I was learning pretty quick. We had great folks, great department heads across the business. As I, you know, you and I talked about before, you know, you can go to school and you get a formal MBA or you can get a street MBA. And that's just definitely yeah. my street MBA uh, experience, spending time with department heads and, and the, the, the folks that are, you know, doing a, a majority of the work uh, in each department to, to give me a better sense of, what people are doing, how those pieces need to work in harmony uh, to make sure that the business runs efficiently and grows on the appropriate trajectory. Um, and then give me a sense of uh, what those people need, right? So from a re for, for, for me, the decisions that I am, am making are not, you know, what color is going to go on this marketing material? It's what resources does the marketing department need and how do I quantify and qualify those requests and make yeah. those decisions more effectively? Um, so that, that was a good six to nine months of this being in the office or being on, on calls, talking to folks, you know, being humble, asking really good, probably stupid questions to them to make sure that 
I was educated enough to do the things that those department has needed me to, to deliver, right? Where, where is the value for me as COO if I can't make decisions, manage risk, solve problems, dedicate resources, all right? All those things are really important. So I think it's um, important lesson for that you'll learn in the military is when you're a junior leader, you think that, okay, I'm in charge of people, but I'm also going to do their job for them, right? And then you very quickly you grow out of that as one person can't do the job of four or five folks. So it's a really good, hard lesson you learn about leadership. Uh, about managing managing and leading people, right? Developing and, and organizing process and then taking people through that process. Uh, so I, I learned that. I had to relearn that lesson in the private sector in this job pretty quickly. Was it different? When I asked different, Yeah, I feel like we all have to come up with these like psychological tricks. One of them being like work avoidance, right? Some people have to convince themselves like I'm going to avoid work and give, them, give it to other people and that's how I'm going to learn to delegate. But going back to the question, was it different learning that process in private sector versus? I think it was, it was different because I had gone through it multiple times in the past. So I, I agree with you. And I would call work avoidance. I put a positive spin on work avoidance. Hmm. I, I would say that I extended trust to the department heads, knowing that they were the experts and they were going to provide me accurate information and get the job done. And they didn't need me to, to be in the way. Um, so that's... Uh, I think that's the way I approached it is yeah. as a, as a high performing team that we have as the core management of this business, I trust you as X department head to execute. And you tell me when you need something and I will ask you questions when I need to understand uh, something or, or if you're doing something that's having some sort of other impact in another department, we're going to have those conversations, but I'm not going to get in the way and, and think that I can do your job better than you. So yeah, yeah. extension of trust one, I think it, it generates some initial goodwill for folks that don't, you know, that I didn't have a historic relationship with. It empowers people to take ownership, partial ownership of the business. You know, it's there's equity stake in a company is not the only way that people can feel they have, have skin in the game. I think that's really important to create an environment like that. Yeah, I agree. I think I, it's more than just positive spin. What you're describing, as I think back at my first go at, at becoming a manager, it took someone pulling me aside, person who worked for me and said, saying, look, are you doing this or am I doing this? Yeah. And, and I, <laughs> I, I really admire how bold she was to, to say that, um, this was on a customer site and everything. Uh, she pulled me aside and, and said that. And, um, I, the, my thought process was exactly what you're saying, which is do I trust this person? Yeah. And the answer is yes. And by the way, I don't have a choice. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but I did. And that meant something to them. You shared with me that having to, uh, I'll call it restructure. I don't know if that's accurate, but restructure uh, the team was inclusion and, and necessary as you got your arms around the business. Can you walk me through how you came to that realization? Yeah, of course. Uh, yeah, so I think with uh, with any, uh, we'll call it regime change, I guess, right? there's um, there's going to be, I think, some refocus of, of business, of your resources to make sure that for, you know, for me as the leader of the company, um, who is all, overall responsible across the board is, you know, am I setting the appropriate strategic vision? Am I giving enough guidance to build a strategic plan? Do I have the right team in place that I feel can execute that plan of where I think the business needs to go? Um, and, and that's by no means, does that mean that if there's dissenters, right, they go away and I'm going to replace them with, with yes people, right? That is, that is not the intent whatsoever. But, you know, I think it's important for uh, 
after you identify where you where you need your organization to go, where you think you're going to lead that organization, uh, making sure that you've got buy-in at at every level, right? And if you don't have the appropriate team that has the right skill set, that has the right understanding of the business and understanding of the strategic vision, and in some cases weren't necessarily supportive with it, you know, it's 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 important for me specifically to to sit down with those with those individuals and say, hey, here's where we're going. You know, is this something that you think you want to be a part of? And most people said yes. Some people said, well, you know, I think I would like to go do something else. And in some cases, that's just a matter of, you know, people doing something for five or 10 years and they're, they feel like they just need a change, right? They get tired. Uh, you get, uh, you know, performance fatigue and they want to transition to another, another phase of their, of their career. Yeah. Um, there's nothing wrong with that. So, yeah, you know, I think for us is focusing on as a, as a purely commercial business years ago, being able to balance the sort of customer base that we have. And again, as as um, technology platform companies are become more prevalent, and, and companies transition to building software away from you know, tech-enabled services type type uh, businesses, in order to make sure that we stay true to the core business that we have. You know, at some point, maybe the robots will push us out of this industry. You know, 10, 15 years from now, and we won't be necessary. But we're, I think, we're still a ways off from that based on what we see and how the market speaks to it. So for me. Taking a step back and saying, "Okay, you know, this is this is where I think the next two to five years for vertical knowledge is uh, is the, what it's going to look like." You know, do I have the team in place that I think can execute to get us there? If I don't, what are the pieces and parts I need to replace or sunset? Right? It's seventeen years. You, you collect a lot of things, things that were yeah. important ten years ago, positions that were important ten years ago. Uh, you know, folks get hyper focused on the future. And sometimes it's hard to take a step back and say, well, we created this thing a decade ago and we, we don't really need this department. We don't really need this. This position is not as critical. So maybe it's time to reorient the business and optimize a little bit, right? Create yeah. a and, and reinvest that those resources somewhere else. So, uh, you know, I went through a period of that too. It was good for me, basically a, a complete, you know, internal audit of the company to make sure I understood every piece and part, uh, but also make sure that we were tuned and optimized to, to move forward. You know, at the end of the day, you know, everybody's in the business of increasing shareholder value, right? Like that's not the, that's not the only thing that's important, but that is the the driver, which means you've got to run a business where you're increasing um, operating leverage year over year, right? You're running a profitable business or you're investing that profitability back to fuel growth. Uh, but shareholders and, or I'm sorry, customers and employees are, are equally as important, right? We really those three demographics you have to balance. So if you don't have the right team, if you're not delivering the right product to your customers, you're not able to increase shareholder value. Like you're not running an efficient, effective business. And, and yeah. efficiency and effectiveness are two different things, but they're equal, but they're they're both important, right? So for yeah. me as chief executive, like those are the things that I have to balance. Um, so long way of answering your question of you know the the vision that I set for the company and where where I feel like I can I can take this team uh, over the next you know half a decade. Like I needed to put the right pieces and parts together to make sure we can get there. Not yeah. just for, but for, for the company, again, for the, for the employees, for the customers and for the shareholders. Were there things that you learned through that process, uh, either things that went well or didn't that, uh, you might share with others going through that same process? <laughs> yeah. One of the things I, I uh, realized, um, and I don't know how true this is, but my perception is, you know, in the private sector and people don't really don't like letting folks go, all right. They'll do whatever they can to avoid that sort of conversation. And that's not been my experience from the uh, my military career. So for me, that was a little bit of a culture shock where I think I had to be real careful about how and when 
I was packaging up certain uh, positions to either transition away, right, or or uh, replace one for one. I mean, those those things for me, that's it's a natural evolution of an organization, right? Because yeah. you know, people are going to fall off, but yeah, like that's that is the thing that keeps people up at night, right? It's really it evokes some pretty some pretty deep emotions. Um, yeah, you know, it, it doesn't have to. I mean, it is inherently a negative experience to sit across from somebody and say, hey. This is kind of the end of the road for you, right? This is the last stop for you as we press on. Doesn't make you mean you're a bad person. Doesn't mean necessarily that you have, you're you're a poor performer. But you know, as the company moves forward, you know, this is this is uh, this is our departure point. Um, yes, yeah. the least by far the least my, the least favorite part of of my job. Uh, but you know, I think when uh, the the when you relieve the responsibility of having to have those conversations at the department level and below, and, and this doesn't apply for major corporations, you, know, you can't like, you know, the CEO of a 5,000 person company is not going to have all the hiring and firing decisions. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, I think it was important for me to, to take ownership of that and say, Hey, look, you know, I, I'm, I'm telling you, take a look at your internal departments and tell me where you need to fine tune. And folks are like, no, I think we're good. Uh, Cause they didn't want to have those conversations. Um, so that if if there are changes that we have to make, I will make them. I am ultimately responsible for all of these decisions. I need you to tell me what your department needs to look like going forward to be successful and achieve your part of our strategic plan. Right. So when I framed it that way, folks are like, yeah, so I got three, four folks that I don't need anymore. Okay. Like <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. So you know, I think when it comes down to, uh, you know, it's a really great book. Hopefully we don't get sued for some sort of plug here, but uh, CEO does three things. I read that about a year ago. I thought that was really okay. People, culture, numbers. Those are the three things the CEO does. For me, transitioning out of the military into a technology company where, and I, and I can't, I couldn't write you a line of code. Um, if you had a, if you're going to hit me over the head with a chair, but I'm leading a technology firm. But for me, it came down to a couple of things to generally, uh, make me successful is, you know, I'm, I'm not, I'm not afraid to make decisions. I'm not afraid to help people manage risk, which is important. I think I have a, a good sense of how to build and, and lead effective teams, high-performing teams, and I'm willing to hire and fire people. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's pretty important. Right? Those those yeah. work, I think help me build uh, a foundation to to get deeper into this business and understand the the finer points of finance and technology and product, uh, yeah. strategy, sales, marketing. So th- that was, I think, probably the most profound thing that I realized is, okay, uh, we've got a plan. I th- I've got the uh, many pieces and parts of the team that needs to execute this, but I'm I'm at a I'm at a choke point uh, because folks don't want to have those difficult conversations. So, like somebody's got to do it, and I'm ultimately responsible for those things. So I will do it. Right? I, it's a it's it's military thing. Leads from the front kind of deal. Yeah. Was the sensitivity with letting people go, when you describe it, you talked about both the organizational re- reaction to it yeah. and reception to the request to re-examine things, as well as the difficulty of the the human experience having to let someone go, right? You're, yeah. you're, um, they have to go find a new job, a source of income, et cetera. I obviously, you know, it's obviously hard to let someone go, but were you, were you speaking more so about that? Or the organizational dynamic surrounding it. Yeah, I think it's both, right? So it's the it's the 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 one on one conversation, which is you know, it's regardless of how you spin it, it's always going to be a negative thing. Yeah, but you know, those are those things are occurring one on one. But as people depart, right? What is everybody else in the company? What is their perception? Like, am I next? It's it's all those things, right? It invokes that yeah. uh, the fear, the perceptual fear. So. 
uh, equal balance of being able to to tune your organization, right? To have those conversations, move people on or sunset positions. So at, at the same time, though, communicating to the company, like here is the plan, right? There are some things that are going to, to change. Um, here's why we made those decisions. Um, but this is not a, we're not going through a mass layoff where there should be some sort of fear and panic that's, that's reson- that resonates through the business, right? So so you want to have those one-on-one conf- uh, discussions, you want to keep those things, you know, personal to the individuals until they depart. But you also have to have a pretty good, effective, consistent communication strategy to make sure the organization understands one that there are changes uh, either coming soon or are happening, and why, right? And yeah. why it may or may not impact them. I think that's really important. It's just that to have that little bit of communication across the company to to, to give people a sense of, of why we're changing, basically. Right? Right. To their own devices, humans, regardless of who it is or where you are, like they're going to potentially assume the worst, right? So you let a couple yeah. of folks go because we're, we have this great, tremendous growth opportunity. You don't frame it that way and, and are not honest and transparent with folks. And they go, oh man, we're going out of business. I got to start looking for another job. And then you start losing other folks that you didn't want to lose. Right. So that equal, I think it's an equal balance of that individual, discreet, confidential communication, right? That's respectful and, and you'd honor the, the components of the transition uh, in concert with that broader communication to the organization to make them feel like they understand what's going on. Yeah. And I don't think that's an option. I mean, I think that's a requirement, right? You've got to communicate to the workforce. It is if you want to succeed. Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> uh, not, not everyone does such a great job at communicating either the plan or the why. And I think both are important and they need to be logical, right? I think people are, <clears throat> to your point, they'll they'll make assumptions where you don't provide explanation. And when you do provide explanation, it's it's got to pass muster yeah. with them, right? Mm-hmm. The podcast is called Hindsight. Do you have any other hindsight you'd like to share from your time at Vertical Knowledge? I do. I have uh, the one I talk about this a lot, actually, is... Um, you know, I, I didn't fully appreciate the, um, even as a, as a small business owner, when I was in the military, right. As a, as an opportunity, there's two opportunities on the side. Um, you know, there's a financial component to that, obviously, like you've got to, you've got to make enough money to stay open. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, 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 coming into this position, managing this organization, like I said, when I first started, I spent a majority of my time with the technology component of the enterprise. And what I realized was. You know, the the lens that I need to view the business through, especially as the person who is overall responsible for the execution of the business, is that finance lens. And you can't make every deci- every business decision purely off of an Excel document or Excel spreadsheet. But you've got to understand the financial components of the business. It gives you a good gauge of the health of the organization, and it allows me to understand where where and when I could deploy resources to accelerate growth, to address other problems. You know that. Uh, in the technology business, you get two kinds of, well, you get many different problems, but you know, the two of the big ones are, you know, technical debt is you, you, you continue to do band-aid fix things in hopes that you'll come back and, and solve that. It's like, you know, making the minimum payment on your credit card. It's like eventually I'll pay it off. Uh, and then the other side of that is premature optimization where you say, okay, I've got all this technical debt. I'm going to invest and build this really cool thing that'll solve all my problems and it'll be ready in three years. And then 18 months into that plan, the, biz- the business pivots. And now you've invested, you created an additional tranche of technical debt now because you pivoted away from your, what you thought the sol- the future solution to solve all your problems were. Now it's equally as useless. So so being able to, to 
to understand the business from a financial standpoint from a, for a guy who has no financial background aside from managing my uh, you know my own personal finances and then two small businesses when I was in the, in the military to, to to get a sense of what corporate finance is you know how you can use your financial resources as a tool to help the business again to help the employees to deliver better value to the customers and to increase shareholder value over, over time that like that was really a really important component of my business education uh, over the last 18 months is spending time with the finance team to understand right, what's in our pro forma data, how I could use the P&L as a tool in my kit bag to make better business decisions. So that was vitally important, especially again, especially for a guy that didn't go to business school, right? That, that was where I realized I had to dig in, spend a lot of time. Um, so it's an important component of how, how, how I make decisions as the CEO of the company. And I think how we communicate uh, the health and the progress in the business uh, across the the company now. I think people have a better sense. Yeah, you know, we don't send the PNL to everybody, but you know, we have better financially focused decisions because that underpins just about everything we do. There's always going to be a finance component to every decision action you have you undertake in a business. Really important to understand that stuff. Are there any strategic realizations that you came to through looking at the PNL or just the financial statements in general? Yeah. Again, all this stuff comes back to people, right? <laughs> uh, okay. People are expensive, right? Like they are like, sure, yeah. Business, and we can, uh, yeah, we we can if left unchecked, you know, you can run up your cloud services bill pretty quick, or you can buy, yeah. you know, Primo Ferrari engine sort of infrastructure that you may not need. But ultimately, is you know, when when as humans, when we experience or encounter a problem, in many cases, we want to throw more humans at it, and that's not always the right decision. So being able to show the I think the economic impact of that, I say, okay, we have a problem at hand. The solution to this problem is not two more people or three more people. Like that's not how we're going to get this problem solved. Right? Like what, like let's work through this problem. Here are the financial resources we have at our disposal. You know, can we change a workflow a process inside the business? Can we tune our technology to reduce the impact of this problem? Or do we actually need to hire more people? If we do, that's okay. But I think the, the default answer that you know I've seen in the past is hey we're gonna we've got some stuff going on we need to grow like and growth isn't always the always the right answer so I think you know strategically getting people to understand that of of you know you're you are facing down the problem today you're looking at it dead in the face let's take a step back and really define what the issue is how we got there and what we think the solution is going to be and if it has to be people that's okay. But it's again, it's you could turn an off, you could turn on an office, uh, to turn a service on and off. Um, it's much more difficult to turn a person off, right? Sure. So, yeah, just like we, you know, we want to we want to make sure we're fielding the best team. Uh, we don't want to bring folks in for a four month problem and say, okay, hey, thanks for coming. We don't have anything else for you to do. That's not fair to. to right. Them. Yeah, I think the final one too is you know, not to not to belabor it, but um, is uh, again. Thinking about my my military uh, time, you know, people say this all the time. I, I don't necessarily think, reflecting on twenty years, that people actually lived it, but uh, it rings true in, in commercial as well. And it, it's specifically for in the position that I'm in. I have to execute this way. Is you can delegate authority, but you cannot delegate responsibility ever. So I can I can empower you to make decisions, and I can empower you to take ownership of something. But if you make a mistake. I'm ultimately responsible for that. We'll share in that, right? Like it should be a learning yeah. opportunity for you, but at the end of the day, I'm the head technology guy and I'm the head sales guy and I'm the, the I own the the financial plan. 
Um, I owe the accountability to the shareholders and the customers and the employees. So yeah. that responsibility never leaves my plate. So we can share some of it, but at the end of the day, the, uh, you know, the buck stops with me. And I think yeah. that's really important. Like you've got to, if, if there's anything that uh, I think executive leadership can be all in on to effectively run a business, it's that, is you are always going to have the responsibility. You can delegate the, the authority down. Don't delegate so much authority that one individual can yeah. destroy your business, but you've got to keep the responsibility in your rucksack. You can't, you can't yeah. give it up. Just to be clear, because I, I think about this topic a lot. You mean you can't delegate accountability, responsibility for doing the work. You can't delegate. That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I don't mean to mince words, but. No, it's okay. Uh, yeah. It's good. It's good. So when you think to the future of this business, um, you know, you, you've, you've put in place a team that you anticipate will, will serve the business well for the next two to five years and, and you know, continue to grow. And what, what do you, what do you view as some of the challenges going forward for the business? Yeah, I think it's, um, and when you, when you think about, you, you get through the first 40 million and then the, the next 40 million, hopefully a little bit easier, but, uh, you know, it's really about scalability. How do you scale the business? Mm -hmm. um, and it's not just about selling more data to more customers, right? It's obviously a component of it. Um, but yeah, again, another thing that I, I learned quickly over the last 18 months is, you know, uh, product market fit and go to market strategy, right? So you're really investing in, if you, if you want to run a, a high growth business is what is investing in the time and resources into understanding what your go to market strategy is. And I think we've, we've done a good job there. So, you know, for us, one, it's first and foremost, it's selling more data to, to more customers, but. You know, doing that through channel partnerships where we're not as an individual entity trying to generate all of that business directly. Uh, channel partnerships are important. And the commodity that we sell uh, should be and is interoperable with all sorts of different technology, right? So if you're a platform company, what better way to, to show, to demo, demonstrate the value of your platform than putting some sort of differentiated dat data set in there that should speak to your customer base. So, you know, I, I want to be your prime data partner. Um, data exchanges, data marketplaces, like those things allow us, uh, allow our sales team to, to essentially generate a level of, uh, passive income right in the company from a revenue yeah. where the, the marketplace is marketing your, your data. Uh, you know, we're at a given day, we're running thousands and thousands of, of, uh, data collections, right? So we can make those things available in different marketplaces that speak to different market verticals. So that's, uh, yeah. Beyond $40 million, if we're going to scale a data collection business, like that's, those are really important components of thinking about how not to go at it alone, right? It's, there's a, a community here where we can be uh, completely interoper interoperable and, and biased towards partnerships that's going to help our business grow. It's good for us. It's good for our partners. It's ultimately good for the customer because they're getting something that's more streamlined, vertically integrated, no pun intended, you know, a turnkey analytics platform solution that interacts with data the way they need it to, and they get the data as well, right? And there's optionality built in there. Right. So just to be a little more specific, you're saying if they're a Snowflake customer yeah. and they're using Snowflake, Snowflake has a data exchange. That's right. There are data, data in there. Sources. Yep. <clears throat> and, and you guys can publish there, mm -hmm. creating visibility as well as sale. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Right. Yep. So have you gotten to, has vertical knowledge gotten to where it is today? Largely through direct sales? Yep, uh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. It's an exciting time to be spreading your wings. It is. Yeah, it absolutely is. It's been wonderful chatting with you. I really appreciate you joining today. If folks want to learn a little bit more about how they can take an idea for how they might use third-party data yeah. and explore it further, 
with vertical knowledge, where would they go? Uh, VK.ai. Okay. Yeah. That's so, simple. There, send us a, yeah, send us an email and we'll get back to you. Awesome. Thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Great discussion. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Hindsight. If you lead a business or are a student of business, this show is for you. Please subscribe and tune in for a new episode each week. My name is Kanai Kapadia, and this show is produced by KGK and Company, the fast-emerging strategic consultancy to middle market businesses. You can find us online at www.kgkcompany.com. That's kgkcompany.com. Have a good one, folks, and I'll talk to you next week.